point. I want you to do something for me now. I want you to uh, show me the victory sign for just a minute. And then uh, go back to your eyes. Okay. And then do this. Now, look at your neighbor and repeat after me. You look great. Even though you've lost an hour of sleep. Now, wait one more thing. But I'm watching you. Some of you got my text and said it was okay to sleep during the service. That was not correct. That was a joke. Alright? You can't do that. Don't do that. We started a new series today called It's a Secret. Somebody was confused by that and said, when are you going to tell us what the series is? But uh, it's all about being a secret. I, when the Lord laid this on my heart, um, it was really kind of strange the way all of it developed. And by the way, let me invite you to the book of Genesis. Would you look there please? Genesis Chapter 3. When, uh, when he began to lay this on my heart, I, I, I thought, you know, Lord, um, what, are you, what exactly are you, are you doing here with this? And usually I kind of know a little. You know, he shows me what he's trying to do. But I've got to confess to you, I've got a whole list of things the Lord has given me, stories in the Bible, and, and uh, seven weeks worth of lessons, but I don't know what he's doing. And. Uh, so I just, I, I just assume this. So listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God is doing something in the hearts of our people. And I'm going to obviously let God be God and let Him do whatever He decides to do. But I need you to do something for me. I need you to open up your heart to Him. And give Him permission to do things in you. Because the truth of the matter is, some people may not have any clue about where you are with the Lord. But I know this. I know He knows. Amen? Amen? So as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, let this be our prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So let that be our prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, Lord, and we just ask for the powerful, awesome work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe you are our teacher, you are our guide, and so we pray, God, do a work in us. God, you are indeed an extraordinary God. You have chosen to meet with such ordinary folk as us. So we come to you today, Lord, and we ask that you do great things in us. Take the word of God and show us, Lord, things in our lives that we need to work on. Help us to learn about you and to learn about ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 3, that's a familiar text. As a matter of fact, I doubt very seriously that any of the passages of Scripture we will look at over the next few weeks together in this series, I doubt very seriously that you've not already looked at those, and you're not real familiar with them. Today is one of the most familiar, right out of the Garden of Eden, if you will. Here we go, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now let's stop for a moment. Because we've, we've chosen a fairly familiar text today, we can kind of stop as we go. You know the story. You know where we're headed with this. You know that uh, the serpent, uh, Satan in the form of a serpent, is successful in his temptation. 
He's successful in getting Eve to do what Eve should not have done, what God said don't do. He is successfully getting her to share it with Adam, who the Bible says, and this is an interesting point, some people don't even realize, but the Bible says he was there with her. She didn't have to go across the garden to get him. He was right there the whole time. So when you're, in, when you're picturing this, this slithery serpent uh, speaking, which apparently Eve didn't think was odd, right? <laughs> when you're picturing this, I want you to understand that Adam was right there beside her the whole time. Now we have something here. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through six stages in what we're calling the original cover-up. The original cover-up. Now there are two things that happen here. First, they, they cover up themselves, and then they try to cover up what they've done. And so we learned that, obviously, in Genesis chapter 3. If you look down a little bit, uh, verse number 7. Uh, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, notice this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When I saw one of those pictures that you just saw, one of the images on the little bumper video of the kids, you know, you got these kids standing behind these curtains and the curtains only come to here. And I, when I first saw that picture, I thought, you know, that's kind of like us trying to hide from God. We think we've really pulled one over on him and he, he sees everything. You can't hide from God, am I right? Mm -hmm. His being omniscient, His being all-knowing. When God shows up in the garden and He asks Adam, where are you? He doesn't ask Adam where he is because God doesn't know where he is. He asks Adam where he is so that Adam will take stock of where he is. And at the beginning of this series and at the beginning of this sermon, may I ask you please to look at that yourself and ask yourself, where am I? Because here's what we're going to do throughout this series, and particularly today. We're going to learn more about God. We're going to learn more about ourselves. But we're also going to learn more about this whole thing of temptation and the process of sin and deception that can occur. So we're going to learn about our adversary, too, through the course of this whole stuff. And we're, uh, we've already been introduced to him. How do we know that this is uh, uh, Satan uh, and not just a serpent? Well, the Bible tells us that in Revelation, as a matter of fact. All the way at the other end of the Bible, uh, we find Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 recognizes him, identifies him. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So we know what his demise is, but until his demise takes place, he is called the great deceiver. Now the first stage we're going to look at, if you want to go ahead and start filling in your blanks and I appreciate those who have made those available to all of us today. First stage in the original cover-up, we're going to call the contradiction stage. The contradiction stage. Now I want you to notice what happens here right off the bat. First of all, uh, let's, uh, let's agree on something. Let's agree that God had successfully communicated to Adam and Eve what His will was. Do you agree with that? Do you, do you think there was any confusion there? He was very clear, was he not? I mean, life was pretty simple. There were not ten commandments. There was only one. There was not a multitude of people. There were only two. 
It's not like a whole lot of confusion can take place, but apparently the contradiction stage occurs not only with Adam and Eve, but it occurs in our life too. And see if you can recognize it in your own life. Notice what he does first off. The very first words we hear our adversary speak has to do with something God has said. Would you look at it? Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, Eve doesn't really answer that question directly. She begins to explain what God had said. Had she answered it directly, what would her answer have been? Yes. That would have been the answer. Because God did say that. He did not misquote it. And this is one of the problems we need to understand about the way the devil works. He often does not misquote the scripture. He just misuses them. He misapplies them. When we read this, we say, wait a minute, God did say that. He did say, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. But there's more to what he said. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of it. You can't eat of it. Now, he left that part out. Now, here's what happens. In the contradiction stage, when the devil tries to get us to do stuff that we end up trying to cover up eventually, when he tries to get us to do that which is against the will of God and the Word of God, he will often come to you with a partial piece of the Word of God. After all, if he can confirm what you already want to do with what God has said you can do, doesn't that make it easier to do? Amen? Amen. Thus we have this word, deception. Deception. Right now, in the day and age that you and I live in, there are groups of people around us who consider themselves, actually they call themselves Christian, although they would be considered an unorthodox form of Christianity. Why do they use that term orthodox and unorthodox? Orthodox just refers to people who hold the common beliefs of a religion, or uh, uh, in this case, the common beliefs of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is the second person in the Godhead. Those are common beliefs. There are some, such as the Jehovah's Witness, that will come and they will knock on your door and they will tell you that they are of a Christian denomination, but in reality they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God, and that He is God. That, that They do not believe that He is the second person of the Godhead. They don't believe in the Trinity at all. And what you will find that they have in their possession is a little book. And the little book has topics in it. And anytime you ask a question, they can thumb through and find uh, an answer for your question. And typically, hear me out, typically it is a part of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So why are you saying what you're saying, Pastor? It's because we need to understand the way the devil works. Even in the temptation of Christ... When, when Satan approached Jesus, he quoted the scripture to Jesus. So don't think for one minute just because you can hunt through the scripture and find something somewhere that supports what you want to do, that it's actually the will of God. Are you following me today? Mm -hmm. I'll go with the three of you. That'll work. <laughs> three of you, I'll go with that. Deception. The Bible says he was more cunning. That's the word I used. The word that's here in the New King James. You will also find the word subtle. 
as you read certain versions of the scripture, the, the term deceptive is used. In the Hebrew, it is the word Aram, and it means to be crafty, sly, shrewd. Don't, don't think for one minute that, that you can actually recognize him readily. Don't, don't think that. We've got to understand that, that he is very cunning, very crafty. You have to be on the lookout for whether or not he's trying to take advantage of you. Trying to get you to do something that God would not have you do. Now there's something interesting that happens here that moves us into the second stage. And so let me, let me do this with you. Let's, let's first go back to the text. Uh, Genesis 3 and verse 2. Eve answers, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I am of the opinion that the last part of this is not actually a quote from Eve of what God has said. Let me explain why. There is no reference in the scripture to God having said, don't even touch it. He didn't say that. You understand that punctuation marks, such as quotation marks, were added to the scriptures. They were not there in the original writings. So had he said this, then her quote would have been correct. But nowhere in the scripture does it record it. And if he had not said this, then she would have just committed the first sin, which is lying about what God said, and not eating of the fruit. Are you following me? But I honestly believe that this came from Adam. I really do. If you'll let me speculate on this just a little bit. Don't, don't give me a whole lot of room to run with the lease, but just a little bit. And, and that is this. I believe old Adam said to Eve, listen, let me remind you what God said. God said don't eat of that tree. Now I'm telling you, don't even touch it. That's the best thing for us, because if we don't touch it, we won't eat of it. And so let's do it. And so I believe that's the case. And I think she's probably telling the serpent that. Don't even touch it. So, for whatever that's worth, but keep following me. Verse number four. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Now, is there any truth to the deception? Yeah? A little bit? Am I right? Just what? what is the truth? You're not just going to keel over. I mean, there's no cyanide poisoning in that fruit. You're not just going to over, but... There will be an instantaneous spiritual death that occurs, and then physical death will begin. So, he shares just enough information, withholding enough information, to bring her to stage two. Consideration. Consideration. So we move from contradiction to consideration. Now let me show you verse uh, verse number uh, 5. Look at verse number 5. Uh, well, I didn't finish verse 4. Let me go back. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, part of the deception, and, and this particularly applies to young people today, but it also applies to all of us, regardless of how, how old you are or how young you are. Here, here is part of the deception. You are missing out. And God knows you're missing out. And if you don't want to miss out, then you just need to do this. Are you hearing me? Mm -hmm. By the way, the devil has no new tactics. The same stuff he does here in the garden, he does today. He's done it throughout time. 
I mean, honestly, if it's not broke, don't fix it, is the, is the old adage, am I right? And, and, and if it's not broke, it still works, so he still uses it. And as long as we let it work, it's going to work mm -hmm. to deceive us and get us to do the wrong things. So look what happens, verse 6. So when the woman saw it, notice the word when. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now let's not leave out the last part of that verse. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Consideration stage. Now, now follow me for just a moment. Here's what happens. When deception lines up with desire, did you catch this? This is a very important point. You can get this and catch your hour that you missed last night, okay? It'll be all right. If you get this, when deception lines up with our desire, that is when the devil comes along and offers you something and leaves a little leeway saying, you know what, God is okay with this. Don't you understand? Maybe you've misunderstood some stuff. God is not going to, listen, it's all okay. And, and when deception lines up with our own desire, then we commit the sin. Then we do what we should not have done. And it's a powerful temptation. I wrote in the margin of my notes as I was studying this at my home, I put, sin comes dressed as a bucket of snicker bars, not a plate of broccoli. <laughs> I don't know why that came to my mind. Obviously, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I just... I thought, you know, if sin was not attracted, if it wasn't desirable, we wouldn't have any trouble with it. Would you agree? So deception usually lines up with that desire, and then before we know it, we've done it. So we have the consideration stage. One of the biggest mistakes Eve makes is found in verse number 6. So when the woman saw. Now the Bible tells us in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. When we allow ourselves to walk by sight, we start aligning ourselves with that deception. Because what you see is not always the way it really is. And if you see it long enough, you'll begin to consider it. And if you consider it long enough, you'll then do stage three, the committal stage. The committal stage. By the way, these are all stages that are very similar probably in every event we're going to look at in our whole series. David and Bathsheba, very similar circumstance. How about Achan and the Babylonian's garment? We all know I saw, I coveted, I took. You know all those things. And, and throughout the scripture, it seems to be the case that, that typically when deception lines up with desire, then we do the decision making. We make the decision. And when we make that decision, we commit whatever it is that has been offered to us. So instantaneously now, we have spiritual death. We have physical death that is beginning now in their life. It's interesting, really, as you stop and look at this. Eve takes of the fruit, and then she gives it to Adam. And Adam eats of it. Adam doesn't even debate this. Have you ever really thought much about this? Why does he not say, wait a minute, I know what God said. 
Why, why does he agree? Well, I've heard all kinds of speculation. We're not told. We're not given any, any real reference to this from the scripture as to it. But, but I've heard people say, well, Adam didn't want to let Eve plunge herself into eternity without him. And so he sacrificially eats of the fruit. I don't know why he does it, but he does it. Maybe he said this. Maybe he said, you know what? Everybody in the world is doing it. <laughs> Amen? I mean, there ain't anybody else except him and Eve, so everybody is doing it. And obviously that is one of the things the devil uses today, is it not? Everybody is doing it. You're missing out if you don't do it. Everybody. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because this has a lot to do with the committal stage and, and later what ends up being the hiding and the covering up. All, all, this has a lot to do with it. And, and, and that is that when we find ourselves in a situation where we begin to define what is right and what is wrong, no longer by the clear communication of the Word of God, but instead by the popular opinion in the world. Then we find ourselves doing all kinds of things that we shouldn't do. And we always say things like, well, everybody else is doing it. Or I know that person, and that person holds this particular position in the Lord's house or among the church, and they do this, so that must make it okay. Or I know this person, and nobody has a stronger family than they have, and because they do it, it must be okay. And we begin to measure ourselves by ourselves, and the Bible says that in itself is not wise. So God's Word was clear. And then we have number four, the concealment stage. There's something interesting. I, I, don't, I can't quite put, I, I don't understand all this. I try, I really do. I, uh, I've studied psychology pretty much for years and years, and, and I, I understand it to some degree, but I don't quite understand this thing. There is something in us, seemingly from birth, that when we do something we shouldn't do, we feel like there's an urge in us that says we have to hide. Would you agree to that? There's something there. If you take a little child, for instance, just a little child, and they grab something they know they should not have. I FaceTime nearly every night with my grandson, who is 13 months old now, okay? And, and he is fast. I'm talking fast. Most of the FaceTime is at the back of his head, is what I see. That's all I see. And, and he will do stuff. He's he, he will do stuff. He will take something he knows he should not have, and the first thing he does with it, he runs. Now, in their house, they have two hallways, and he will run into this hall till he comes to the locked door. He cannot open that door. He's not tall enough yet. So he stops, and he turns around, and he looks at his mother. Thus, he's looking at me in the phone, and I see the terror on his face. <laughs> so as soon as she moves out of the way, he takes off by her and runs to the other hall and does exactly the same thing. He's trying his best to get away with what it is he's got. Only he runs into a dead end every time, and he's trapped. Some of you know this from having been a parent, you parent a child, when that little child is quiet, you start thinking, okay, what is going on? You never had to teach the child to go and hide. You just know that when they're quiet, they're probably up to something they shouldn't be up to. Am I right in that? You understand what I'm saying? There's something in us. 
something in us. Adam and Eve were the only two people on the planet. And after they had committed this act, they covered themselves up. From who? The one they were made for? Do you, are you following what I'm saying? What is it in the, in the heart and, and the nature of man that says when we've done something we shouldn't do, we need to cover up? Constantly it happens. There's a, a form of deception in our life. And I often point to people in, in marriage counseling. A verse of scripture that just caught me really by surprise many years ago. It's at the end of chapter 2. If you go back to chapter 2 in the book of Genesis, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, years ago I'm reading my Bible and I come across that verse and I thought, that's kind of a weird verse. It's just an odd verse. Why does he say that? Well, it's because you're about to read of a situation that changes that. And what is, what are we talking about? In a marriage situation, there should be transparency, if you follow what I'm saying. There should be this openness and this honesty among each other. Would you agree to that? That's what it takes to have a successful relationship with one another. Then, because they transgressed against God, suddenly... That is gone. Now there's a need to cover things up. I tell people all the time, fellas and ladies alike, you should not have your own passwords, your own email accounts, your own uh, whatever it is that you do by yourself. Your, your spouse ought to be able to access your phone and see everything. They ought to be able to access your, your uh, web account, whatever account that is that you have. Uh, and, and you can call it privacy, but I'm telling you, you're setting yourself up for deception and being able to deceive if you don't keep that thing the way it was at the end of chapter 2. Amen. Before too long now, things are hidden and buried and they're there. You say, well, uh, I, I'm hearing you, Pastor, but nobody really knows. And, uh, and that's the way, well, i got a news for you, ladies and gentlemen. God knows. That may be the whole reason for this series. I don't know what the reason for this series is. So I'm just going to preach it and leave it up to God to do the application. But uh, the truth of the matter is, there is this concealment stage. So what happens? There's two things that are involved when a person tries to conceal. There are two issues. One is control issue. The other is a conviction issue. Some people hide things because they have control over it. It's like the child that takes the stack of cookies and they run to their room because they don't want to share them. Right? Or it's like the person that has the private bank account, the secret bank accounts, so they can control their money. Or the stash of cash that nobody else knows about. Now don't look at them because you'll give it away. The, uh, and you've got certain, because you want to control certain things and it's a control issue. Well then there's the conviction issue. The conviction issue is of course because you know whatever it is isn't right might not be a control issue with you. It just may be that you know that someone is not in favor of that and you know that it shouldn't be that way and so you are hiding it as a result of feeling convicted. 
We're going to break all the rules today about what it takes to build a church, by the way. We're going to talk about things like conviction. And, uh, uh, but, but it's done in the, in the, uh, with the purpose in mind of the best thing in the world we can do is, is let's just be open before God. Let's just come to God. If there's a matter there, then let's just come to Him. And let's just take care of it. Let's get it out of the way. And if there are problems in our marriages, problems in our families, problems in our lives, if we, listen, you'll be so much more at peace when you've taken care of it instead of just trying to conceal. So important. It is possible, by the way, to quench the Spirit of God, and it is possible to sear your conscience. I think that that little thing we talked about where kids run off and they hide and, and there's something in us that says we have to cover this up. I believe God has given us a conscience and I believe he influences that conscience. Now when we get saved, I believe that conscience is influenced in some cases even we might say replaced by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life where he brings, brings things to us. Yet the Bible tells us uh, in the uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we have several things we're told to do, beginning in verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit, it says. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So we know that it is possible. The word quench means to, to uh, stop. Don't stop the Holy Spirit. Don't sear your conscience. Don't come to the place in your life when what you're doing, you're doing for so long and so boldly that you've developed the spirit about it that it is okay and you don't care any longer whereas it started out possibly as something that you wanted to hide, something you didn't want anybody to know. By the way, if you've ever had that sensation of embarrassment, if it's bothered you, if anybody knew about that, maybe that's a good sign that you ought not be doing it. Maybe that's a good sign that even the nature within man is teaching you that that ought not to be something you continue to do in your own life. The concealment. The Bible talks about Romans chapter 8 verse 5 for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Can I, can I tell you something? According to that passage and according to others, it is possible. And I, this might need some explanation. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you understand this already. But it is possible to have been saved, which means that you were made alive in Christ who were, we were once dead to trespasses or in trespasses and sins, and God has regenerated us. It is possible to have been regenerated, but to now be what we would classify as spiritually dead. How can that be? To be spiritually dead, according to Romans, the passage we just read, means that you have turned from being spiritually minded to now carnally minded, and the word carnal only applies to a saved person who behaves like they're lost. The word carnal does not apply to the lost person. It's to the saved person. So what the Bible is describing is it is possible to have been regenerated, but to now be classified as spiritually dead, not spiritually alive, in need of, if you'll let me put it this way, in need of a personal revival. 
So then what about this thing? When does that happen? If things in our life have drifted to the point that we're concealing things from God and doing the great cover-up, then it's possible that we've seared our conscience and we have quenched the spirit to the point that we're not spiritually alive. Well, you're still going to heaven. You can't lose your salvation. That's not what is meant by it. It just means that you're no longer living in the way Christ would have us live. And because of that, we find ourselves in need of that revival. You cannot revive that which has not been revived to begin with. There had to have first have been an awakening, and then a revival needs to take place in our hearts. So don't misunderstand what I'm trying to get across to you. But nonetheless, this is what we have. We have reasons why we tend to hide things from the Lord. Or try to do that. Uh, number uh, number five, the fifth, the fifth stage. And all God's people said, "Amen." Let's get off of that fourth stage. It's the confrontation stage. And I got to tell you, it doesn't get better in this stage. Uh, this is when God calls us into account. And we read on, if you will, look with me in the scriptures, please. And the Bible says in verse number eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now I've looked at this several times and I, I, I don't understand. I, I've tried to use, I have a fairly good imagination most of the time. And I've tried to use that to understand this text better. And I, 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 I struggle with this. What must this have been like? Will you consider that with me for just a moment? What must this have been like? To have been Adam and Eve. To have had fellowship with God. To the point that you're actually physically walking with him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I, I find that to be an amazing thing. And so here they are. And the Bible says they heard. They heard the sound of the Lord God. Now what does the Lord God sound like? In the, in, later in the New Testament, we find there are thunderings and, and lightnings. And he has a voice, the Bible says, of many waters. Maybe that's what, I don't know what they heard, but they associated the sound with the presence of God. And then look at what they do. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Can I, can I ask you to think with me for a moment on this? There are, there are a few passages of Scripture that I have felt like over the years are probably the saddest words in the Bible. For instance, one of mine for years I felt like the saddest words. Remember in the New Testament Jesus was talking and he said some will come to him and they will say, have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done these many mighty works? And then Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. For years I have thought, those are sad words, man. That's sad. But i got to tell you, right up there with them is this passage. They heard God. Do you know what life was like before this? When they heard Him? They ran to him. And now for the first time. For the first time. They run from him. There's something within us. When our life isn't right. We run from him. 
So they try to hide. It's a silly thought, isn't it? How do you hide from an omnipresent God? How do you hide from a God who is omniscient? How do you hide from God? Jonah tried it. Remember that? It didn't work too well. He ended up with a whale of a problem. <laughs> I know that wasn't worth being able to laugh, but that's okay. He tried it. He tried to hide from God. You, you ever, you ever try? Listen, maybe I can just be inconspicuous. Maybe I just, maybe God won't notice. Maybe I can be over here. And the Bible says they actually went into the trees, which I find is very, very interesting. You know, it's like the little boy in the picture you saw earlier that's behind, behind the pole. You see all of his person, but just, it's like, how do you, how do you hide from God? Well, let me share something with you for whatever it's worth. Maybe you have thought you are hiding from him. You're not. He's, he's found you. But he wants so desperately to fellowship with you. May I draw your attention to this thought, please? It was God who came to man. It was God who came to man. It was God looking for fellowship with man. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that man initiates worship. It is God who initiates it. It is always God. It was God who gave the design of the tabernacle to Moses and said, It is under these conditions that I will meet with you. And yet in our society today, we think somehow that worship has to do with us. We're missing something here. It was God who came to man. It was Jesus who came to us and gave himself for us. So we have this confrontation stage. We have God showing up. We have a man hiding. And we have verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and he said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Out of a shallow answer, I, I, it really is. I mean, I, I heard you, but I was, I was afraid. I, I, I hid myself. I hid myself. What we're about to read is correction and consequence. And so God now begins to speak with him. We already mentioned earlier, may I reiterate it only briefly here, that God does not ask us where we are because he needs to know where we are. He already knows that, but he wants us to take stock of where we are. He wants us to admit where we are. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, it is not until we admit where we are that we can do anything about it and get right where, where he is. This is a very important part of it. As long as we keep up all of the facade... As long as everybody else thinks that we're right with God, as long as everybody else thinks everything's good, as long as everybody else thinks, if that's your motive, what everybody else thinks, and not what God thinks, then you're never going to address the issue or address the question of where are you? Where are you? So the Bible tells us, he began to speak in verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, does God already know the answer? Sure. But he wants him to admit. He wants him to, hear me, he wants him to confess. This is what I did. 
I was, I was wrong with what I did. Then the man said, the woman, I love this, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I, it's the woman, God. And by the way, you gave her to me. <laughs> now before we go much further, let me just say, you won't be the first person to blame God for your circumstance and your situation. Because Adam did it many years ago. The woman, it's all her fault. Amen. <laughs> I thought the men would amen that <laughs> So God immediately turns to the woman, verse 12. Uh, and the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Deceived me and I ate. Now, now. More than likely, everybody here has done studies at one time or another about the differences in the way men make decisions and women make decisions. And there is a difference in the way we make decisions. Women tend to be more emotionally oriented, while men tend to be more principle oriented. And, and nonetheless, we make decisions a little bit differently. So when Adam decided to eat, he made a decision, probably principle oriented. When Eve decided to eat, she cites the deception. I was convinced. That this is what needed to happen. That I should do this. So it's the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent. So he immediately now turns. Because you have done this. You are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So God now punishes the, the very creature. That was inhabited by Satan. In, in such a manner. Now some believe that the serpent. Has the ability to fly. And, and may have had arms of some type, uh, uh, hands, uh, and now because of the curse, they no longer do. And then he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put division between you and the woman, separation between you and the woman. He said, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed, if you have a New King James Bible, you will notice that seed is capitalized. That's because that's a reference to Jesus. And we will see that in the following phrase. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a messianic prophecy. It is the first found in the word of God concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. The reference to bruising his heel is said to have been fulfilled at the crucifixion of Jesus. Whenever he was nailed to the cross. The message concerning the bruising of Satan's head will be fulfilled at the time of judgment when he is cast into the lake of fire. And now he comes back to the woman. Verse 16. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So part of the consequence was labor. Uh, the labor will be painful. And your husband will have rule over you. I find this interesting that God gave this comment to Eve and not to Adam. He didn't say to Adam, hey Adam, you are going to rule over your wife. He didn't say that. He's setting up the domestic authority within the home and he said this is the way it's going to be. And he clarifies it for Eve. Had this been set up previously, instead of a co-equality, which apparently was the case, Eve would not have taken up the fruit immediately. She would have had to have gone through Adam. So God said, I want this order in the house. Now, 
you could say this is old fashioned, and I would say if you go back to the Garden of Eden, I would agree. It's pretty old fashioned. But I would also argue with you that it has nothing to do with culture. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about culture here. We're talking about the we're talking about the, the Garden of Eden. We're talking about Adam and Eve in the very beginning. We're talking about the order within the house. We're talking about as a result of things that happen. This is the order that God said needs to be set up. Does this mean that we readily accept this? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we will constantly fight it in various ways and try to explain why this should not happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So gentlemen, let me just remind you, as my time is leaving you this morning, let me remind you that you are going to be held accountable for your house. And today may be the day that most, that, that our men, if you're not already been leading the way God would have you lead, that you stop and you take note of that and you say before God, God, today is the day I'm changing that. Today is the day I'm going to be accountable for my home. We need godly men to lead and direct their families. Someone said, and I think aptly so, the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck that turns the head. <laughs> Amen? This is not to negate her wisdom or her understanding. On the contrary, it is to make decisions based on a lot of that wisdom that the two of you share together. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, a passage you most of you know, our, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. And I use this word for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we've talked a little bit about the consequences. Uh, with man, uh, it, it says that the ground will be cursed. In toil you shall eat of it. Verse 17 says, all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Do you know there is something that happens today in our society? I met a man yesterday who made this statement to me. And it's happened in our church numerous times. And, and it happens frequently. I meet somebody and they, they're counting down the days until they have something called retirement. People say, you know what, I'm about to retire. I had a man yesterday tell me that. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best to retire in three years. And it's interesting, that man said to me, he's not a member here, but he said, if my wife lets me. <laughs> He didn't know about this message, and, uh, uh, and I didn't preach it to him on the spot. But the, but the point is, we're all looking for that day. Why is that? Because God said your, your life is just going to be a matter of toil. You're going to earn your living. And I'm going to bless you while you do it, but it's going to be by the sweat of your face, the sweat of your brow. Every morning when you get up and you try to pick out what clothes to wear, understand that that's a reminder of what happened back then, back here. Every time you go shopping, ladies or gentlemen, I don't know if you're a shopper. Most men are hunters. They just go and they pick certain things and that's it. Women shop. There's a difference. Can I get an amen, ladies? Amen. It takes time to shop. It takes good shoes to shop. It takes a lot of energy to shop. A lot of time to shop. 
Well, I don't go shopping with my wife. There's a lot of reasons for that. Anyway, all right. Shopping is different than going and buying something. You, you already got to figure that out. Thank God for online buying. Amen. Amen. There is a point I need to make. It's time, please. And this is the very last point. The sixth stage, and that is the compassion stage. And may I say to you that as we approach this thought, I need to say this. I, I need to, to, to speak concerning our culture. We live in a culture that truly believes and embraces a zero-consequence philosophy. We believe that we can do anything we want to do, and there are zero consequences for it, or there should be. We see this in the employment world nowadays. We see people coming in anytime they want, doing whatever job they desire to do, meaning a good one or not, and they still ought to be paid. And we see it in the world we live in with our behavior in culture that says, I can do whatever I want to do, who are you to tell me otherwise? Mm -hmm. We see it in that we believe even the gospel is without any consequence. That somehow we think we can live any way we want to live, and God is a God of grace, and God will bless. I do believe He is a God of grace, and I don't want you to misunderstand that. We do not live in a day and age of the law. I'm not trying to say we do. But what we're about to read, and what we've already read, clearly states that God does hold us accountable. And there are consequences in our life. Things do change because of decisions that we have made. One of the reasons we invest so heavily in the lives of young people. Why do we invest with children's pastors and youth pastors? Why do we invest time and energy and resources in their lives? It's because the decisions they make now will affect them for the rest of their lives. If there were no consequences and there were no uh, change in, in paths by our decisions, then why do that? Just leave them alone. Because we know better. We know there are consequences. In the case of this, God shows His compassion. The Bible says, uh, verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. This, by the way, would have been the first time that Adam and Eve witnessed death or the shedding of blood. So God now takes some animals and he kills them and he takes the garments. I had a, a staff pastor one time on my staff that argued with me about this. He asked me, he said, he said, Pastor, what do you think these suits look like? And so he began to describe what he thought. He said, I just think, I just believe they were all bloody and, and rough. And, 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 and I told him, I said, no, I think it was a very nice wool suit that I don't have. I, I think God cleaned them all up. And, and his view was that God reminded them all the time when they wore these things of the blood that was shed. And, and my view was that they witnessed that. They knew that. But God had now taken care of that. And it's a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How through the blood, the blood of Christ covers our sin. Washes it away again. So then something happens. We keep reading. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. I read one commentator who said that God and his consequences here punished Adam and Eve by kicking them out of the garden. Let me explain something. This is not a punishment. This is grace. Had they eaten of the tree of life in their unredeemed state, in their lost condition, they have just plunged the race of mankind into separation from God. And if they ate of the tree of life, they would have lived forever, hear me, with no opportunity to have been redeemed. So God said, this is what I'll do. I'll set them away from the garden. And I will guard the tree of life. And that's what he does. Verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. And a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. <coughs> Removing them from the garden was not an act of punishment. It was an act of grace. So I ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, where are you? God showed up at the invitation time now and he called out to you. He said, where are you? What would you say? Would you say, here I am, God. I want to walk with you like we always do. Here I am, God. So glad you showed up again. Or would you say, you know, I've been hiding, God. But you already know that. I want to do what it takes to get right. I want to do what it takes to walk with you in the cool of the day like we used to do. John Phillips in his commentary on the book of Genesis later talks about Enoch who walked with God and was not for God took him. He says Enoch was alive or Adam was alive when Enoch lived. Adam lived all that time. And he paints this beautiful picture that Enoch one day no doubt sat down with Adam and said tell me how it was when you walk with God in the cool of the day. Back there in the garden, can you tell me what that was like? Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we ask you to bless. In Jesus' name. I'll head you back and I